Well, our text this morning is found in that passage in Philippians, and uh, Philippians 2, and uh, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, friends, it's clear that Paul had a blessed relationship with these believers in the church at Philippi. And uh, if you know something about the rest of the New Testament and the other letters, you'll know that Paul didn't always have such a happy relationship with some of the churches to whom he wrote. There were times when he had to face very serious issues and at times with real force to bring them back to the gospel and the Lord Jesus. Gospel and the Lord Jesus. But when he writes to the church at Philippi, you can sense and see in what he says that he has real joy. It is everywhere in this letter. Now, this church at Philippi and the believers there, they weren't perfect. There were issues. But he says that they are his joy and his crown. And we find that throughout this letter, joy is this recurring theme. And I want to say to you that joy is a very beautiful thing. You know, the Bible says that joy is the spirit of heaven. It's the, the state of mind of all those who will be with God in glory. And heaven is a place of joy. And when we live the, the Christian life and when we're walking with the Lord as we should, we will know and experience something of this spiritual joy. We know elsewhere in the scriptures it speaks of joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, these things, they don't come because of the things of this world, but because of our being in Christ, our union with him, our relationship with him. And it is amazing. When we know something of this joy, and when we know this blessedness because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus, it also has an impact on how we are with others. It will add a gladness to our fellowship with our brothers and sisters, of our seeing of one another. We'll be glad to talk to one another and spend time with one another. And when we're in our true position as believers, we, you know, we are glad to meet. We're not embarrassed before one another. We are at peace with one another. There is unity and harmony and love, and these are precious things. And you can't buy them with money. They are things that only the grace of God can bring about in our hearts, in our lives, and in our fellowship. But the question is this, how can we promote this spiritual joy? What can we do to encourage this spirit of heaven to be promoted amongst us? Well, in our text, Paul is explaining exactly that, how joy amongst believers can be encouraged and increased. And really, it begins from the outset of the passage, verse 1 of chapter 2 and onwards. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. You know, again, they're wonderful things to have that like-mindedness. To have the same love, to be of one accord, of, of one mind. And the question is, where else in the world would you find a spirit like that? And you know, many attempt it. Many try to create something similar in the world, but ultimately it will fail. You know, the only place that this is found is amongst those who are united to Christ and walking in fellowship with him, earnest before the Lord. And it begins with humility. Humility is key. You know, the churches which commend Christ best are those which are characterized by the spirit of Christ, the spirit of humility. You know, within the church, 
our prayer should be that people would look at our relationships and say, there's such a sense of unity and harmony among these people. It seems that they are all for Christ and all for one another. How is it like that? We should want our relationships to promote that type of inquiry. And he goes on in verses 3 to 4, he says, let nothing, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And there is the, the formula for unity and love and peace and joy to share the same spirit, the same mind, to be mindful of the trouble of, of others, not just your own. Do you know, we can, all of us, so easily come to church and we're only looking for what we can get from it. You know, we can come so easily and we can be conscious of all our own difficulties and, you know, we've, we've all got our own problems and our own trials, our own temptations, but Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, don't simply think of yourself. Don't simply think of your own problems. Remember the brethren. You know, they're also walking through things that maybe you're not aware of. They're also facing trials and difficulties. Don't just look to yourself, but remember your brothers and sisters who have similar challenges. You know, misplaced words... Unkind glances have great potential to cause division. We all know how easy it is for friendships to be torn apart through what can at times be such minor offenses. But often when we trace the problem down to the root, at the center of the disunity is the ugliness of pride and the exaltation of self. And we can easily become entrenched, can't we? We can say, well, you know, if they think that I'm going to apologize, well, they can forget it. You know, they've got to do something first. It's all on them. You know, I didn't start this. I'm in the right. I don't need to make the first move. That's not the spirit of Christ. You know, and Paul wants to encourage the believers at Philippi to pursue harmonious relationships, to have tender hearts toward each other, and it was so important that they were united together in heart and purpose, particularly as they come under the pressure from the world, from the culture, to renounce Christ, to compromise on their obedience to him. And so to encourage them, he doesn't give them sort of seven steps to, you know, a united church or anything like that. He points them to the vital element in harmonious relationships, humility. And there is no better way to cultivate that than by pointing to the Lord Jesus. To have him front and center. If only they considered him. If only they looked to him. They would see the, the humble pattern required to pervade their minds and their relationships. And also find in him the strength to be able to live like that. And Paul says that as believers, we, we must be humble, self-effacing, but we can only do this if we are united to Christ in that living, saving relationship for his mind to be in us as we follow his example. And so he says, look, here is the pattern. Here's the inspiration. Here's the strength. It's Christ. And as one explains, his humility is unique. It is without parallel. 
in the history of mankind of all ages and nations, there is no example of the humble mind and the humble spirit which even comes close, which remotely compares with those of Christ. And so a number of things for us to see this morning in relation to this. Look at verse 6. And I want you to see the glory and honor of God the Son, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And so this speaks of the glory and the honor which Jesus Christ had in and of himself. Now, I need to explain to you a little bit of this word form, being in the form of God. It's a word that we have to understand and know the meaning of. It's the Greek word morph. It, it means this, what a thing is of itself. One preacher, I remember, gave a helpful illustration of this. Now, we're all human beings. That is true. We have that in common. Some of us are older. Some of us are a little younger. We have different hair types. Some are more clever than others. Some are more well-off than others. Some have more difficult jobs than others. But the thing that we have in common is that we are all human beings. That is our more. Everything else about us is changing. You know, hair goes gray or maybe even disappears. Little ones grow up, God willing. The superficial things about us are changing and passing, but the unchanging fact is our humanity, our form, our morph, and God has given us that. Now, the form of Christ we find in our text is that he is God. That is what is essential to Christ. He is God inherently, eternally, unchangeably. That is what he is. And he knew it. You know, we see that in verse 6. Paul explains, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He knew that it was no exaggeration for him to be claimed to God. You know, it would be utterly dreadful and appalling exaggeration for you or for me to claim to be God. It would be blasphemous, totally wrong. But it is no robbery for Christ to claim to be God because when he said he was God, he spoke what is true. That's a very rich statement. And clearly, my friends, it's, it is truth that Jesus is God. There can't be any doubt about it. There's no ambiguity here. Jesus is Jehovah. He is not only the Son of God, but he is God the Son. And this must mean that everything that belongs to God belongs to Christ. It is part of his form. And so we cannot escape forming the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. There is no other way to state the doctrine of God. You know, there have been many, and there are still many people who don't like the truth of the Trinity. And they mock it, and they ridicule it. They say, oh, you know, how can the one God be three? How can the three be one? Doesn't make sense. What a nonsense. But when we come to the word of God seriously, how else could we state it? If Jesus is God and yet the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God, either we must say we have three gods or three persons in one God. And the Bible is clear. There is only one God. And it doesn't talk about three gods. So there is nothing left but for us to affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, one God, three persons. That is the truth of Scripture. 
And so the Lord Jesus is part of that trinity. He has the form, the essence of God. Everything that belongs to God belongs to him. All the divine substance, all the divine essence, all the divine attributes and powers and prerogatives and sovereignty and majesty, it is his as much as is of God the Father and the Spirit. And let me say, you know, as that is true, it is obvious that if we are not believers this morning, if we are not Christians, then we are very great sinners. Because if we reject Christ, we are rejecting God because he is God. And you cannot reject Christ in his gospel without rejecting God. And so in a true sense of the word, a non-Christian is a godless person. And that is a terrible condition for anybody to be in. A non-Christian does not know God. He does not have God. Because not to have Christ is not to have God. If Christ is God. And very simply it means this. That those pseudo-Christian religions and cults. Who deny that Jesus is God. They're in a desperate position. You know those groups who say that Jesus is less than God. That he is created by God. That is blasphemy. And against the scriptures. He is not less than God. And if he is, then he is not in the form of God. And if he is not in the form of God, then Paul is writing nonsense. But when Paul tells us that Christ is in the form of God, he is stating this massive, majestic, Trinitarian statement concerning the Lord Jesus, that is his eternal and inherent right to be God, to call himself God, and he did so. Now, I also need to be clear on this. All of this is true of Jesus Christ always. There is a, a growing trend at the moment and things that are being said that question the deity of Christ. But these things were true of Christ before the creation of the world, true of Christ at the creation of the world, true of Christ through all the Old Testament period of history. It was true in his birth, his incarnation. It was true in his life, in his death on the cross. It was true in the grave. When our Lord was in the grave, he was God. When he rose from the grave, he rose and was God. He is God still. He will be God when the judgment day comes. And all the way through, he cannot change in his godhood. Godhood is something which does not mutate. It does not vary. His godhood is unchangeable. You need to be clear about that. You know, there are still so many today in certain circles who say, oh, well, you know, when Jesus died on the cross that, that he lost his divinity for a time and then, you know, it suddenly came back and oh, it's nonsense. He never lost his godhood. It is a blessed and glorious truth and all our hope, all our salvation depends upon this. You know, what a salvation we have if he is God. What a saviour we have. If he is God, how, how satisfying to God the Father his death is. How adequate his blood is. If it is the blood of the one who is God. How little reason for fear we have. If he is what he is, why should we be anxious? We are clothed with the righteousness of God. We are being interceded for daily and continually by the one who is God. His atonement, his intercession, his everything is that of a divine, eternal, infinitely wonderful person. And that's why Paul states the matter as he does with regard to Christ. It's a glorious person. 
the glory and the honor of the Son of God. And he sets him before us in all of his majesty. But then he goes on, look at verse 7 to 8. This one humbled himself. Paul says that the Son of God humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now notice that Paul says that there are two distinct stages concerning this humbling of Christ. One was the humbling to become man, and then the humbling of himself to die on the cross. Christ abased himself to become man. Now again, we need to be very clear about this. His self-humiliation was by addition, not subtraction. He didn't humble himself in the sense that he lost anything that he had before. He didn't stop being God. He didn't cease to be God. He was God still, as we said, but he humbled himself rather in that he added to his divinity what he did not have before. To Godhood, he added manhood. Now, some have argued that the words he made himself of no reputation should be translated, he emptied himself. But that is not a good translation. It opens the doors to some very dangerous paths. He didn't empty himself of his godhood or divinity. The way in which he humbled himself is in that he made himself nothing. That would be the best way to put it. When he came into this world, he made himself nothing. And I want you to see with me how he did that as Paul explains it. It says he made himself of no reputation. One preacher puts it like this, a great king clothed with scarlet and ermine, wearing a crown, would for a time perhaps lay aside all his royal robes and diadems and take upon himself the clothes of a humble peasant and appear amongst other peasants in order to, to bless them and do them a kindness. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. He's not ceased to be what he was, but he has appeared in this world as a peasant, as it were, he made himself seem to be nothing. It was not that he was nothing, but he appeared to be nothing. He made himself of no reputation. And then he says he took on him the form of a servant, the form of a bondservant. You know, even when he came into the world, Christ didn't come appearing as a great man. You know, if you were to see Jesus Christ in the days of his flesh, you know, of his fleshly coming, he looked like, any other man in society in that sense. You know, that, um, that's the danger people fail to recognize him. And the Bible says that men, Romans 9.32, stumbled at that stumbling stone. And they do it still. You know, when they talk about him today, it's only to use his name as a swear word. But my friends, this Jesus they utter is the Lord from heaven. This Jesus that they abuse is the, the king of glory coming to this world and, you know, he appears to be just a servant to fulfill the promises of God and all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's the, the servant of Jehovah, the servant of the Father. He came to do the Father's will. He humbled himself to do it. And it says he was made in the likeness of men, verse 7. Now, the likeness of men means he took upon him human nature such as we now have it, but without sin. Let me explain what I mean. Paul is saying that it was not the human nature that Adam had before the fall. 
You know, if Adam and Eve were suddenly to walk into the room as they were when they were first created before the fall, you know, their faces would be so glorious and beautiful in our eyes. You know, we'd, we'd hide our faces. We're so different from the way that mankind was at the beginning. You know, they were radiant, resplendent with the, the beauty of God, fellowship with him in the very faces and character. And we, by comparison, are faded and marred because of sin. But the Lord Jesus, when he took our nature, he didn't take it in its original glory. He took it as it now is in its faded condition. But there was no sin in Christ. He was utterly sinless, but he took our frailty. He took our weakness. He took all that our human nature now has. And being found in fashion as a man, he also humbled himself and became obedient to death. You know, he looked as though he were nothing else but only a man. You'd never thought that Christ was more than man. There was, there was nothing in the way of that supernatural beauty. You know, in the myths of the Greeks and the Romans at the time, they often would have stories of one of their gods coming down in the likeness of, of a man out of curiosity or a woman out of curiosity, and they'd mingle with the people. But such was their pride, they couldn't resist showing their brilliance either by growing in stature or, or blinding them with brilliance. They couldn't hide it anymore. In fact, if you read in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas were ministering among the Greeks and they spoke so well that the people thought, this is a God, step down. They thought that Barnabas was, was Jupiter come down. They believed in things like that. But here's the wonder about Christ. Nobody looking in his face would ever have thought that he was a God because he looked ordinary and he did so out of humbleness, I say, with all respect. And though he had the right to look godlike and glorious, in his self-humbling he was found in the fashion of a mere man. Do you know, we live today in a society where people are always talking about their rights, their rights to do whatever they wish and not face the consequence. You know, we, we've got our rights, they say. All manner of people pressing their rights even when they should not. But here is this wonderful person who came from heaven, who had the greatest rights of anyone, but he waived his rights, his right to be recognized as God. He waived that right. He was content to be supposed to be a mere man. He was content to appear to be a mere nobody and a mere nothing. It's an astounding miracle. You know, think of John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And you say, well, surely that contradicts everything you've just said. No, not the glory which could be seen with the eye, but the glory which every believer sees by faith, the glory that shines in the very character of Christ. For his outward body appeared to be that of a mere man, his character, his holiness, his love, his goodness, his consistency, his sinlessness, his benevolence, his patience. They are all that of God. And that's why he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And then says Paul, if that was not enough, he humbled himself even further. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
It has been said that the person who was crucified died a thousand deaths. To be nailed to a wooden cross and to be left hanging as people could be was to die, not a death, but a thousand deaths. A person who was crucified, as one explains, died by inches, moment after moment, hour after hour, dying slowly. And it was that death our Lord died. Painful and shameful, accursed and damned, our Lord died the death of the damned. You know, when the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to bring us to saving faith, we are brought to see the reality of the cross, the horrendous nature of the cross, but we're brought to see him. We're brought to see the one who went to that cross, the one truly innocent, never a sinner by nature or deed, and yet he became sin. The sin of his people imputed to him. He bore our sin in his own body on the tree and he lays down his life, the death of the cross, to bring sinners like us to God and grace brings us to see it and to believe it. And we see the depth of his suffering. Here is love, vast as the ocean. We see the intensity of his suffering, loving kindness as the flood. And we see him bearing away our sin, our substitute, the only one who could do it. He loved me. He gave himself for me. He saved me. And we see that there never was any humility like his humiliation. He chose to be born as a baby, to live as a man, to suffer as an outcast, to to die as a criminal. He exchanged the homage of angels For the hatred of men, there is nothing like this anywhere else. You can go and look at all your other religions and philosophies and all the rest. There is nothing like this. He stands apart. And it's hard for us to comprehend the immeasurable majesty and the, the awesomeness of what he did. But Paul says this very simply to the Philippian church, and he says it to us, Our mindset needs to be the same. Our humility needs to be like his. And to get it, we need to keep looking to this glorious Savior, to keep looking to the way that he humbled himself for us. And as we realize more and more this amazing and unfathomable reality of the creator of the universe stepping down into this world, taking the the same humanity and going to the cross, will be changed. And so we need to pray often, we need to pray regularly that God will put this mind in us which was in Christ, that as he humbled himself so that we too would be humble. And we can't do it in our own strength. We need his help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We depend upon the Holy Spirit to enable us to be humble as he conforms us to the image of Christ. But imagine, my dear friends, if this mind existed in the body of believers here, which it does in measure, but we pray for more. What unity, what purpose, the expulsion of pride, an overriding desire to love one another, to esteem one another highly and to glorify God, not just on occasion, you know, not just at times, but consistently throughout our life 
and witness together, not just when we, we feel like it or, you know, if the circumstances happen to be right, consistently like the Lord Jesus. Let this mind be amongst you. God's word commands us, you know, and we need to ask ourselves, how can we look to those around us and, and look to their needs? How can we think more of them than of ourselves? How will that mindset inform our prayers and inform the way that we use our time, the practical details of our day? And all of it comes as we focus on Christ. It's the outworking. And if we pursued that attitude and prayed for it, who knows what the Lord might do through us and the witness of this place. You know, I feel so much my lack in this area. I'm praying that God would deal with me. I pray that God would deal with you. You know, we make mistakes. We've all done things that we deeply regret. We need to keep those short accounts. Come ever back to the Lord and pray for his help and pray that he would lead us on in this way by his strength. And then as we finish, humble but exalted. You know, it's wonderful to know that this Lord Jesus not only humbled himself and died upon that cross, but he's also risen again in triumph and is now exalted. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. You see, the way of humility is the way of blessing. If you want the Lord, you know, to bless you and to be with you and all those things, you know, the way of humility is the way. You may say, well, why is God ready to reward humility? Well, true humility is so very hard for us because we're still really full of pride. You know, we all have that fallen desire to be important, to be recognized, to be praised. We love to have the preeminence, you know, to be the thing that matters. We like the idea of those coming to us, and, you know, that's why so many want to be celebrities. They love the attention. They love the, the adoration. They love the idolizing. And that spirit is in our fallen human nature. What did the devil say in the temptation? You'll be like God you'll be like God. God loves it when we kill in ourselves that spirit of pride and when like our blessed Savior, we are ready to be nothing. We're ready to be nobody. And it says that God has highly exalted him, the one who, who humbled himself in the manner that he did. And it means it's super exalted him. That's the meaning. He has exalted him with a transcendental glory, a glory without parallel. And this Jesus who was born at Bethlehem, who died on the cross, is now raised to the very highest pinnacle of exaltation. And there are none anywhere of all created beings that can faintly compare with him in his magnificence and in his honor and in his glory. And every knee will bow before him. And in the day of judgment, my dear friends, the Jesus whom you trusted and worship is going to be publicly adored by every rational being ever created, from the devil to the highest archangel, every possible created being will have to come before Christ and to bow down before him and confess that he is Lord, that he is Jehovah, that he is the God-man. You know, I pray that you don't have any difficulty doing that right now. 
I pray that you will acknowledge him as Lord and Savior now, to rejoice in him now and delight in him now and give him the worship now and the adoration that he is due. He will receive that. And that's an encouragement to us because we live in these days when all of these things seems to be trampled upon. But ultimately, the outcome is not in doubt. The gospel will succeed. The true church of Christ will endure. And in the end, Christ will be Lord of all. And we can believe it. And so, with all that in mind, how should we then live? To his glory. To humble ourselves. To have his mind. To esteem others better than ourselves. To keep looking to him, to his sacrifice, to his work. And to be made like him through the working of the Holy Spirit. And for that to be seen in the way that we are with each other. And when that is seen, Christ will indeed be all in all. May it be so amongst us. May he help us have the mind of Christ. Be humble. Esteem one another and all to his praise. Amen.